0: Welcome to another Distinct Nostalgia by MIM.
1: Brought to you in partnership with Life Rooms and Mersey Care NHS Foundation Trust. Staying well, staying home.
0: Now, this week on Distinct Nostalgia, we've not one, not two, not three, but four retro soap episodes. We've been celebrating Hollyoaks 25 years with our interviews with show originals Lisa Williamson and Yasmin Bannerman. We've another Corrie at 60 interview to come this weekend, but now we're turning the clock back 48 years to 1972. Back then, ITV needed some new programmes as the UK's most popular network at the time opened up the daytime schedules for the first time. And so were born shows like Crown Court from Granada, General Hospital and The Cedar Tree from ATV, and from the then-fledgling Yorkshire television... Emmerdale Farm. Emmerdale was a tale of farming folk in the Dales and was a huge success from the start... One of the originals, Freddie Pine, who played Matt Skillbeck from the very first episode on October the 13th, 1972, has been chatting to Ashley. Let those memories come flooding back.
2: Well, Freddie, it's lovely to talk to you. I, being as old as Emmerdale, or almost as old as Emmerdale, I was born in November 1972 and Emmerdale started in October uh, 1972. I sort of grew up uh, with the show in many ways. I lived in Yorkshire. It was our local soap. And um, I remember, you know, you you were part of my life watching you in the afternoons and then in the evenings uh, throughout the 1970s and, and 80s. Let's go back, though, way, way back before Emmerdale in 1972 and hear about your journey to Emmerdale. What, what were you doing before uh, you landed a role in Emmerdale?
3: Well, I started out doing... When I left RADA in 1962, ten years before, I did a lot of repertory theatre at Derby and Lincoln and Colchester and Oxford with Judi Dench, Oxford Playhouse. And then I did some television here and there. I did a Crossroads or two, Dixon of Dock Green. uh, I did a play called The Three Princes, A Christmas Play, and I was in another thing with Judy Dench called Talking to a Stranger, where I played Morris Denham as, he, as his younger self. The cast said Morris Den- uh, father as a young man, Frederick Hunn. And I had it was I didn't have any dialogue, but we had battle scenes in the First World War, where we had to run across a battlefield and pull trip wires so explosions went off and all that sort of thing. And then there was the first night with me and uh, Anne Mitchell, who was his younger wife, uh, played by Marjorie Mason in the in the full, you know, when they got to their full ages. And it was fascinating because um, it was a four-part thing by John Hopkins called "Talking to a Stranger," and it was groundbreaking television at the time. Judy Dench had a black boyfriend, for example, if I remember correctly. And that, in those days, that was, this was, um, yeah, before I went to the National, so that was 1964 or five, five, I think, and then I went to the National Theatre in 1966 for four years. So I worked with the Big L, as they called him at the time, or as uh, John Dexter called him, the Black Lady, because he played Othello, uh, Lawrence Olivier, I'm talking about, who I got on very well with. He's a wonderful chap for for most of us he really was and he wasn't supposed to have said I, I know people call me a bastard but I have to be a bastard to get where I am but um, he was never a bastard to me fortunately but uh, we used to have little because in the play called Dance of Death he was a beginner and I was a beginner and Geraldine McEwan was a beginner and I was a sentry at the back of the house so he always used to get down there early and we used to have a little chat before the before the play started. So it was quite interesting to have a little natter. One day I said to him, he said, how are you? And I said, oh, I'm fine, how are you? He said, oh, I'm tired. And I said, none of us work as hard as you do. And he said, only a fool works as hard as I do. Because he was running the company and playing huge roles, etc., etc., but... Uh, like most of us in those days, we worshipped the ground he walked on, and I still do. And then 19, 1966 to 1970 I was there, Then I decided to leave, and I did some more theatre work. Yeah, I did uh, Talking to a Stranger after I left the Old Vic, and then in 1972, they started, or maybe even earlier, they started casting for Emmerdale Farm, as it was then, They said every actor in it has got, A, have got to work in the theatre and B, has got to be Yorkshire born and bred. Well, I was born in London and brought up in Cambridgeshire during the war, so I wasn't really the ideal person for the part. But anyway, I got it, so that was nice. And I stayed with them a long time, as you know. 17 years of my life went by.
2: So, looking at Emmerdale and thinking back, what was the... Original thinking, the original premise behind it—you know, what was, uh, what did the writer uh, uh, want to achieve?
3: Kevin Lefan's original idea was that it should be like a Dickens novel, that you know, Dickens wrote in, in installments every week or every month, and he wanted it to run for fifty-two weeks and then come to an end, so it'd be like a novel, uh, and of course. Jack, the leading character, as it were, was a writer anyway in the in the series, and it started off with a, a funeral of the old boy Annie Sugden's husband, and he said that everyone at Yorkshire Television said you can't start off with a funeral; that's ridiculous. And he did, he insisted, and um, so. We were told that it was about a farming family and I said well I know all about that because I I had actually worked on a farm during the war uh, as a youngster and then after I left school I left school quite early when I was 15 and I also left home and I went back to live with the people I was living with during the war because they were much more of a family to me than uh, my real family as it were. Not that I didn't get on very well with my mother, I did, but I didn't get on terribly well at that time with my stepfather, although I did later on in life, I got on very well with him. But anyway, I went down to live in Cambridgeshire and at that time I didn't know what the hell I wanted to do and I started work on an arable farm, which was paying me £3 a week in those days. And I had to get on my bicycle and get to the farm at seven in the morning. Anyway, I did a lot of that. And I also worked on a farm up in Cheshire. So I'd worked on a dairy farm and an arable farm, not for very long, but enough time to be able to put it to good use when I went on to Emmerdale Farm. So I told them all that. And they said about the family of Matt and Peggy at that time, because she was the first wife. And I said, well, I know these people. I really do know these people, having read the first episode. I said, I know who they are and what they're like, etc, etc. So the casting director was a lady called Maureen Risco. And I'd already done something. I think she cast me in Justice. Do you remember the series Justice with Margaret Lockwood? I was in that as a Yorkshireman again. I had two nice scenes with Margaret Lockwood which I really enjoyed because she was a great star in her day. Anyway, Maureen rang me up and she said, Well, they like you very much, but now forget all about it because it may never get off the shelf and it might take a year to get off the shelf. So that was that. And then a year later, well, some time later, I went for another interview with a different producer this time, but still with Kevin LaFan, the original author. And he told me that Donald Bavistock said to Kevin, I wanted to write a series because we're opening up daytime television about a farm. And he said, well, I don't know anything about a farm. So they said to him, we'll come up to Yorkshire and live for two or three weeks and find out. (laughs) And that's what happened because he also wrote um, another series, which was very, very similar in a way, but it was in the town, Beryl's Lot. That was Kevin LaFan as well. Anyway, uh, it did come off the shelf and it did start, and we, all, the original cast, all went into it. You know, Ronnie McGill and Arthur Pentelow and Sheila Mercier, Fraser, and uh, Peggy. Who was played Peggy in those days? I can't remember her name. Sorry about that. I will in a minute. She was written out quite early on, and we were all ma- already married when the series started. But they wrote her out, so they had to kill her off. And um, later on, I married Dolly. Didn't
2: um, Peggy actually say the first words on Emmerdale, if I remember rightly?
3: Yes, she did. Peggy said, my name, Matt, was the first word of the series. Because she said, Matt, do you know all those new people over at Pickersgills or something something similar to that? And it, that was Arthur Pentelow and his daughter, Mr Wilkes because the daughter came riding over on a horse, and she said, do you know those people? So I've always been quite proud that Matt was the very first word of the whole bloody series. (laughs) And it's still going, still going, how many years later? 50 years later or something. Yeah,
2: nearly 50 years, a couple of years' time, it will be 50 years that Emmerdale's been going. Now, you were saying, mentioning there some of the uh, the, the early cast, and uh, one that always stands out for me is... uh, is the one who played gran- grandpa, Granddad, and, uh, of course, that was uh, T- Toke Tonley. What, what do you remember about him?
3: Oh, yes, I loved Toke. He was a wonderful chap. Very, very typical English eccentric, but very, very nice man. And I, I Gene actually rang me up and told me that he died. He di- died very suddenly of a heart attack in the middle of Leeds. And I was in tears. I couldn't believe it. I really... I mean, I don't mind admitting I was crying. It was... It was so sad because he was such a lovely chap, very eccentric, as I said. He once told us that when he was married he had a teapot with two spouts on it because he couldn't agree with his wife who should have the first cup of tea. (laughs) I don't know if it's true or not. He said, so we had a 2 spouted teapot so we could pour them out at the same time. I never knew if it was actually true or if it was just a story, but it was a good story.
2: Um, so, did you have you worked out um, who was who Peggy was played by? Then
3: Joe Kendall has come to me now.
2: So, do you remember the the, the very beginning? Then you know how it all started and uh, how you all got together and you know building up to the you know the, the first days filming.
3: Yes, Joe, we were all standing outside the house and uh, waiting for the funeral car to arrive and for us all to get in the car. And so Peggy, my first wife, played by Joe Kendall, said, Matt, do you know those people over at Pickersgills? Or words to that effect, anyway. They'd obviously bought some land nearby. And soon after that, Mr Wilkes came and had a bit of a row with Annie. And Annie said, well, you can do what you like. I'm not changing, blah, 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 as she was wont to do. Um, but he said, So oh, that was... Uh, uh, Joe Kendall, she did a lot of work on radio. She did things like "Have I Got a Clue for You" and all that kind of stuff. I said to her at the time, "You should stay in it for a bit longer because it was only like six months," and she left. And I wasn't—I don't think that was a good idea.
2: And if, and and how many of the people did you know? You know, had you worked with many of them before?
3: Not one of them. Um, They—they'd all met up the night before we started filming. But the week before I was went into Emmerdale, I was working at Sheffield Crucible in a play called The Birthday Party by Harold Pinter. So there was a week in between the two jobs. So I went away for a week and I didn't get back until the Sunday evening. And on the Sunday evening, they'd all met up and had a Chinese meal in Leeds. So I didn't know any of them until the Monday morning when, I, when we started... Talking about the show. I think we went out to the farm on the first day. I'm not sure now. It's quite a long time ago. But anyway, I didn't know a single person in the the show at all. Not one of them. And uh, funnily enough, I thought, and I'm giving away trade secrets now, I thought I would never stay in this show because I couldn't stand Sheila Mercia, who played Annie, at first. Then one day we didn't have any we weren't on rehearsals and she said in her typical fashion I'm going for a picnic in Roundy Park would you like to come so I thought oh, well I have to be polite and not say no <laughs> so I went and from that day on I got to know her better and better and better and I, you know we were great pals and I kept in touch with her even when she was in the, in the nursing home at, she was in um, Denville Hall the actor's nursing home for a long time And I went over to see her a few times with uh, Jane LaFan, Kevin's widow.
2: Now, one of the things that was unique about Emmerdale, I suppose, at that time, was the fact that you really did have to get your hands dirty, didn't you? This was authentic farming. You were out there working in the wild, working with the animals in all elements Uh, tell us a bit about that
3: oh yes fraser and i did a hell of a lot of hard work out on film with mucking out and the milking cows and all that sort of stuff and dipping sheep and of course there were only about seven or eight characters which meant you had a lot to do and once they start these series start to get more and more characters you can find that you've got an episode with about three lines in it. You know, you've got, you think, oh, thank goodness for that. I've got much to learn this week. But um, at, the, at the beginning, we had a lot of hard work to get through. But it was very enjoyable because we were such a good company of people. There was never a crossword in all the years I was in it between the actors. I don't remember. And Yorkshire Television was a very good company to work for. And work with, so it really was like a real family working together. It was it was very nice. The only time I ever threw my toys out of the pram was with the directors, not with the actors. (laughs) Once or twice, I I get annoyed because I knew what was correct in the farming side of it, and if they said, "Oh, we'll just do this or just do that," I said, "No, no, no, you can't do that. That is wrong." And every farmer in the country watching this will know it is wrong. Well, you have got to do it. And I, I wouldn't do it. I'd say no. I'm not going to do it because it's it's just wrong. And I wouldn't uh, then they would come round to my way of thinking and and we do it the right way around.
2: And and as I was saying, you know, a few moments ago, um, it, there was a realism about it, wasn't there? You know, I mean, today it doesn't work like that because um, I don't think they can do things in the same way. But you know, this was what you were doing was you know believable. It was it was really authentic stuff wasn't it
3: oh yeah yeah absolutely it had to be authentic you couldn't i mean i remember one time we had to undo a bale of hay for the sheep and um, it's one of the times i refused to do it because because of the way it was being shot and filmed it meant i had to leave the strings in the hay as we can't do this because the sheep will eat the string as well as the hay you cannot do this so they had to do the scene again and make sure we got the string out of the you know the binding around the bale, made sure it got out of the out of the hay.
2: And of course, in the early years, I presume you know Matt wasn't completely rounded and shaped and and as presume the the character evolved alongside all the various things that you had to do, you know, with the farming and et cetera, et cetera. But your background. Um, will have fed into that. The fact that you had got this, you know, this experience must have helped to sort of shape the character in both the um, Kevin LaFan's mind and in yours too.
3: Well, this is why I said that I knew these people because the people that I was evacuated with during the war, their daughter, who was almost like a sister to me, she married a farm worker... And he worked on the local farm. So I really did know Matt and Peggy. Their names were John and Phyllis, but they were so similar in many ways. I just thought that I... That's what I said at the beginning. I, I know these people. Uh, when when we went up to talk about the the series, you know. So, yes, of course they evolve and you get, you get more into the character and better at playing the part because... I wasn't too sure of my Yorkshire accent at the beginning, although I'd played a Yorkshireman in Justice, but I was—I always had a very good ear for accents. I'd go out and listen to people, and we listened. The farm people, Mr and Mrs Peel, they were very helpful as well. You know, we could talk to them, and I could hear Mr Peel talking like that, you know, blah, 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 blah. So it was all very useful for that from that point of view.
2: And it was hard work, wasn't it, because... Uh... You know the, the the village and the uh, the farmer in different places, uh, so you got to navigate that as well. And uh, um, but but it strikes me you were you know you you were quite a close knit cast, close knit sort of family, I suppose, r- right from the start.
3: Oh, very much so, very much so. I mean, when we first started filming, we were in Arncliffe. We weren't in Esholt then, but Arncliffe was a long way up in the dales, and we used to have to be in the studio for makeup at six in the morning because we had a bus journey to get out to Arncliffe and the very first night of filming we were all put up in this pub come hotel and one of the ways we all got to know one another was that Fraser who was a great trickster, pat prankster, had gone around making apple pie beds in everybody's bedroom. <laughs> so we were it was terrible really, I don't know what the Republicans must have thought of us because we were up and giggling half the night before we were supposed to get up and start filming the next morning but um, as I said it was all good fun and we were a real family that's what made it so enjoyable and I always said when I don't like doing this anymore I will leave and uh, I decided I didn't like doing it anymore when they were going to have a plane crash because I thought that was from my point of view, I thought that was wrong after Lockerbie. I just thought it was terrible. So I said, Right, I'm off. I, but I gave them a lot of notice. I, I sort of said, Well, I'll leave. I think I told them in the spring, and I said, I'll leave uh, before the winter. And they asked me to stay on, and I said, No, if I'm going to leave, I want to get out before the snow <laughs> starts. Because we had some filming with thick snow, you know, we were up to our knees in snow sometimes. I remember with. Catherine Barker, who was the first Dolly, before Jean, did you realise I had two Dollies? I suppose you must have done. That was another one of Fraser's gags. He said, well, what they should do when they recast Dolly, they should put Catherine Barker into hospital, and then she comes home with her face all wrapped in bandages, and then they take a bandage off gradually, and gradually you find it's not Catherine Barker, it's Jean Rogers. That was a typical Fraser thing. He was he was always up to those kind of tricks. Um, and I actually went to the casting of uh, the new Dolly with, with the producers because uh, we saw several people, obviously, but um, Jean was the one we picked in the end.
4: Coming soon to Distinct Nostalgia.
1: Do you want a cup of tea? I'll have half a cup. And that caught on. Yeah, that became a kind of catchphrase, I think.
4: It was the hilarious film of 1999. It wasn't anything to do with race or religion or creed or colour. It was as simple as an art student who thinks he's all free and easy creating a model of a vagina and showing it to his mum and thinking that that's going to be okay. East is East by Ayyub Khan Din broke new ground by portraying a relationship between a British woman and her Asian husband and their mixed-race family growing up in Salford in the early 1970s. A clash of cultures and generations ensues.
1: Oh, frig off and wash your bastard curtains, you dirty cow. And I swear to God, that's one of the best lines I've ever had to say in my life.
4: But the film had a serious side too, tackling both racism and domestic violence. I threw myself and put all my physical strength into trying to stop him, and I couldn't. In Helsinki, they were saying, I can't believe you've made this film. It's incredible because it's showing what life is like for us now. A series of special interviews with Linda Bassett, Leslie Nicol, and Chris Bisson as we mark this classic British film's 21st birthday.
1: It was a great script and it was a timely thing to tell because it hadn't been told before.
4: They've done all sorts of incredible things to transport you back in time to give you an authentic feel of what it was like. East is East at 21. Coming soon to Distinct Nostalgia.
1: I've had mental health problems, I think, for most of my life. Suicide is sadly something which affects people from all
0: backgrounds. My friends didn't quite understand why I was being the way I was being, so support was was pretty much non-existent. A
4: brand new podcast. Brought to you by the Zero Suicide Alliance.
1: I'm Professor Alice Roberts and this is Life Matters.
0: Few people understand that you just actually just need to just sit and listen to what the person's saying.
1: We do know that there are some people who tend to be more at risk than others. In our feature on the latest initiatives from around the world, we find out how three schoolgirls from Brazil have developed a suicide prevention app aimed at Generation Z.
2: If something bad happened to me today, I'll go there and add a drop of water.
1: We're with the team at Hollyoaks to hear how they've been showing how soap can inspire life-saving conversations among men at risk of suicide.
0: I just feel absolutely nothing at all. Nothing, just dead this way you get to see Darren's journey behind the scenes he's really struggling and he doesn't know how to reach out he doesn't know how to get help you know it's always been a taboo subject
1: join me Professor Alice Roberts for the very first edition of Life Matters
4: listen now wherever you get your podcasts and visit zerosuicidealliance.com for a free online awareness course that could help you save lives
2: And of course, changing an actor in those days was very, very rare, wasn't it? Um, I mean, it happened in American soaps and things, but it didn't often happen here. I think it happened maybe actually in Emmerdale with uh, with the replacement of Jack. But this was this was rare. It was a rare thing to happen, and of course, a bit of a gamble uh, when it came to the, uh, the, the the viewers and the audience as to whether or not they'd. You know, um, like the new Dolly.
3: Yes, it was very unusual. Really, it was it was groundbreaking in a way. And I remember Dolly's first day out on film. It's another time I threw my toys out of the pram because uh, she was up in the in the meadow, and I was clearing a, a, a stream with stones in it. It's funny how memories come back, and I had to get these stones and pick up my wellies on, of course, and pick these stones and throw them out of the river, or the stream. And she was saying, Matt, come on, it's dinner time or whatever. And it was about ten to one and we wasted the whole morning. And the director said, right, we'll go straight for a take. I said, what? This was Jean's first day of filming. I won't tell you the language I used at the time. <laughs> But I said, you can't do that. This is our first day on the film. I don't know where I'm supposed to be. I don't know where I'm supposed to chuck these bleeding stones. Whatever, whatever, whatever. So I refused to do, to do it. And they recorded it, the naughty people in the scanner. And uh, said, they put it out. There used to be a competition in those days between the ITV and the BBC for the best Christmas outtakes. And that was one of them. There's a Christmas outtake uh, in a competition with all the other TV companies, out, because there were several of them then, and the BBC. I don't know who won, I can't tell you. But, um, I mean, if I knew I couldn't, I don't think I could... I, I really did lose my temper that day because I thought it was absolutely absurd. It was her very first day of filming to say, all right, we'll go for a take without any rehearsals. It was crackpot. So we had our rehearsals. <laughs> uh, and,
2: and now Dolly and Matt were 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 quite serious characters in a way. Some awful things happened to them over the over the years, and quite a bit of tragedy and all the rest of it. And, and of course, Matt was very much part of the setup, wasn't he, uh, at Emmerdale Farm? Um, you know, he was part of Annie's little world and. Um, uh, yeah he he was he had an important role from the from the very beginning didn't he
3: yeah yeah i think um joe got annoyed because his elder brother had gone off to be a writer etc and, and then on the first episode he'd come back and joe was kind of well what the hell do you think you're doing here we're the ones that are running the farm which we were and it was as i said earlier it was Jolly hard work for the pair of us at the time. But learning a lot of lines and doing a lot of business at the same time. And there was always this sort of constant
2: tension, wasn't there? Um, obviously between um, Joe and Jack, and, and Annie was sort of conflicted, wasn't she? You know, she she still had sort of a respect for her elder son, but she also understood that joe and, and matt were running things and it sort of um yeah it was a real conflict for for annie wasn't it
3: yes it was yeah you're right she she had to defend jack more often than not when joe would got annoyed and would get annoyed and say he's not doing his share or whatever it might be and then she would have to defend him because he'd gone off to be this famous writer which is a bit Kevin lafan himself, I think. That was a part of it. All writers write autobiographies in a way, don't they? So it was part of his life, I think, as well.
2: And, of course, as I was saying um, just now, um, Matt was a crucial cog, wasn't he, in Emmerdale Farm? He actually owned part of the farm as well, didn't he? So that was a little bit of a clash with, uh, with, with, with Jack as well.
3: Yes, he did. He did. I, I, I was like an equal partner in the in the farm and then when I left I was supposed to go on to work down in Norfolk which at least they didn't kill me off so theoretically I could still go back and the, the Emmerdale Farm Club keeps saying when are you coming back and I say never. Um, but I went down to work in Norfolk and then while I was away they sold off, They it was a telephone call because they didn't want to invo- really involve me. Uh, they had a telephone call where I had agreed okay you can take my share of the farm because the farm's no longer as it was now it's all different buildings and everything the, I think the cow shed is now built as homes and the, and the barns and things are all new homes for people up there because Fraser and I and Jean and Sheila all went there on the, I think it was the 35th anniversary I know we did a programme about it and we all turned up at the farm and it was all so different, it was a completely different uh, character, you know. Now, as I
2: said before, you know, um, Matt's character, the character of Matt, w- w- was quite serious um, throughout, and there was a lot of, uh, you know, serious issues, a lot of tragedy over the years, Um you know he was he was quite complex there was a lot to him um but there weren't necessarily many many laughs at times did you ever get sort of um frustrated and fed up playing him
3: no i don't think i ever got annoyed with him I, it, sometimes it was hard work i remember when we had twins in the in the show which were peggy's children and although she left and died in childbirth or however she died we still had the twins and by that time we had uh, a South American producer, Robert D. Cardona, who was a lovely man. And these kids would never be well behaved, they were always grizzling. So one day he came along and he said, I'm going to get rid of those kids, I'm going to kill them off. And so they, they went off with their aunt in a car to go shopping and they got stuck on a railway crossing and uh, they all got bumped off. And then when they came to tell the tell me the story, I had to do a crying scene and I was out in the middle of a field and whoever it was came to say, oh, they've been killed, blah, blah, blah. And I had to do this bursting into tears. And I, I won't forget it because every time I did it, the director kept saying, no, I think we should have another go. I think we should do it again. Can you do it again? And the head cameraman said do you think this is fair on the artist to keep asking him to go into this? And I said, well, it's all right, I don't mind, I'll do it one more time. So we did it three or four times anyway. Um, it was quite quite difficult, but I played a little trick of myself in those days. The The Northern Ireland tragedy was going on, the Troubles, and the way I got into crying was I was thinking about the Northern Ireland thing. As not... Not so much about my two artificial children, if you like, or, or children that didn't really exist in my life, but I thought about something else to get me into the mood of, uh, that would break, make me break into tears. So I think a lot of actors do that if you can't. I mean, the children were fictional, as we were all fictional. So if you can't think of a fictional way of doing it, you think of a factional way of doing it in that in that kind of situation.
2: Now, now the one thing I always remember about Emmerdale was, uh, you know, the big kitchen and the, the Arga and uh, everyone sort of uh, meeting in there. Um, that was the you know obviously you've got the wool pack and other places and obviously out in the uh, in in the farm itself um but yeah my my lasting image i suppose of emmerdale farm was that kitchen
3: oh yes people used to say well why are they always sitting down to eat but that's the obvious place where a family gets together and has a conversation and talks about Who's milking today or what's going up what's going on in Top Field and all that kind of stuff. It was obvious you couldn't have all the family together out in the middle of a field, not that often anyway, but when you came in for breakfast or dinner or whatever it was, that's where we all t- we were all together, including grandad.
2: Yeah, and Grandad, uh, you know, t- Tony, I always remember him sat in his chair, rocking away. Uh, just inside the door kind of thing um he, he was a real character wasn't he
3: yes it was very sad because he he was such a lovely man he as i said earlier he was a what i would uh, what i called and what i said at the time on calendar he was a true english eccentric There was no doubt about that he was eccentric he never stayed in a hotel he lived in a bed and breakfast the whole time he was in there and the people who who ran the bed and breakfast place, looked after him very, again, it was like a family home for him, you know. So they all looked after him very well. But he had his little quirks and his funny little ways. And he used to say, I'm not going to do this much longer. My my accountants told me if I do this another two years, I'll have enough to have a really good pension because he didn't see those two years out, which was very sad. And I believe, I'm not sure, but I believe he left most of the money he had to a donkey sanctuary, because he had no family by that time. Now, two
2: of the um, funniest characters in Emmerdale were, of course, those played by Ronald McGill and uh, Arthur Pentlow, Mr Wilkes and Amos. Amos and Mr Wilkes, I've got fond memories of them. What were what were they like as 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 actors? Oh,
3: they were lovely, very good. This is this is the. I mean, if there were terrible scandals, I don't think I would talk about them. But there weren't any scandals, because they were they were just like they were on off screen almost. I mean, Ronnie was much more. Uh, intellectual shall we say than Amos because they used to sit and do the Times crossword together and all that kind of thing and we used to send them out oh you're doing your bloody crossword are you kind of thing um, but they were uh, I can't tell you what a lovely man Arthur was he was such a charming man funnily enough I uh, um, met up with somebody on a charity recently who is a musician and he stays with Arthur's widow up in Birmingham. And I said, oh, and he said, we were talking about you. I said, well, please, when you stay with her again, do give her my best wishes. Because that was another tragic thing. He Arthur was driving up to Yorkshire and he had a heart attack and they found him at the wheel of his car. It was terrible. It was such a lovely... But I remember the, they were talking one day about sex and he suddenly said, well i don't know what all the fuss is about. I'd just as soon have eggs and bacon myself. <laughs> that was a typical Arthur remark
2: and, and in the show, of course they were they were just like an old married couple, and then another character which comes from the comes from the wool pack was the the one that just used to nod all the time and never say anything and uh, you know his name was uh, was Walter
3: yeah there was one one old Walter who was a lovely man. He, I don't there were, I think there were two Walters in the end, because the first one died off. But he had been a, a hoofer in his time, been a dancer. And he told me a story one day that he'd been in ten pantomimes in Manchester, and he lived for a week each, and he lived in the same digs, because he could get a bus to each of the ten theatres from where he was staying. Can't imagine that in these day and age. And when we came to lunch times, if it was a queue, I always insisted that he went to the front of the queue and he'd say, "No, no, no." I, could. I said, "Come on, you're much older than anybody in this queue. You go to the front and get your lunch and sit down." But he was a lovely, lovely man. And then he he died off, and somebody else took over that role. And he was orig- originally that old Walter. Was photographed in Annie's, at the funeral of Annie's husband, he was in the photograph as having been, what was his name? Gabriel?
2: Yeah, his his name was, Annie's um, husband who died was called Jacob.
3: Jacob. Yes, she said, uh, take it steady, I don't want Jacob bumped around on his last ride. Yeah, Jacob. And when you saw a picture of Jacob, it was the man who'd played old Walter at the bar. But people have forgotten that by then, of course. People are people forget, and people are funny. I remember in Leeds in the hedgerow one day, because it it was a lunchtime program. But it, the Yorkshire Television put the put it out as a uh, an hour long program, the two episodes on a Thursday evening. Nobody else did it, but Yorkshire did. And this lady came up to me said, "Oh, I do enjoy your program, but." Um, must be very difficult for you so i said why she said well on a thursday evening you have to go and do it all again she didn't realize it was just a recording she thought we were doing the whole thing again so it must have been quite real to her anyway
2: and of course itv was experimenting wasn't it at that time with with, with new programs uh, during yes. d- during the daytime
3: yeah because the lunch times they had yorkshire had emmerdale farm Granada had Crown Court, I think it was, and another company had, I was thinking of some hospital thing.
2: Yeah, ATVs was, uh, was General Hospital.
3: General Hospital, yeah.
2: And, and there was another one from ATV as well, which used to come around, on around lunchtime called The Cedar Tree.
3: What a, I don't remember that at all. But anyway, there, there was a time when, when Yorkshire suggested to the, to the companies that they take Emmerdale off for a summer break and all the other companies said, no, you'll be mad, you keep your momentum, if you take it off for a break, you'll lose the momentum of the series. So a series that was supposed to be a lunchtime series is now, when it was really peak time viewing, before all these new channels came on air, used to get 13 or 14 million viewers. I don't think it does now because of there are about 150 channels now, or whatever it is. Most of them not showing very much. So, what about
2: life off screen at that? Did you and the, the cast at that particular time, you know, spend a lot of time, you know, socialising and uh, enjoying yourself in in Yorkshire
3: and, and Leeds? Yes, I think we didn't. We did a bit of off screen nightclubbing and stuff like that, but we didn't do very much because it was always so busy. You would go home in the evening. at six o'clock or whatever and you've got to read scripts for next week or learn lines for the next morning it was it was tough going in those early days because as I said with not a very big cast you had a lot to learn each day especially out filming and you've got to really know it because by the time you started milking cows you couldn't start saying oh I've dried can you do it again please you had to get on with it you know we would go out for dinner occasionally or I was never a pub person anyway and i don't think fraser is he likes a drink but he's not a pubby kind of person so um we did, there wasn't a lot of that going on at all really
2: and of course being at yorkshire television kirkstall road you know this was one of the big itv uh regions and lots of things were happening lots of famous people were going through there uh, as well as emmerdale um it was a real hive of activity and celebrities and you know, big, big names. Um, must have been quite exciting.
3: Yes, yeah, so I went in the bar one day and it was full of actors. There was a lot of people in there. I mean, John Thor worked there and all sorts of people. And I heard one of the security men say to the other one, there's a lot of people in here today. And he said, yeah, it's all these bloody actors. I thought, if it weren't the actors, mate, you wouldn't be <laughs> earning your living.
2: Yeah, I mean, this is where loads of things were made at the time. You know, some real household names when it came to programmes. Many comedies were were made there weren't they
3: yeah rising damp
2: yeah i mean it was a real hotbed of creativity and and talent and all the rest of it and uh you know for for many many years and then sadly now i think kirkstall road is the um only itv um network building that sort of exists from the old days and of course it houses uh still houses Emmerdale, and um the calendar is still there of course from the um the ITV regional news programme. Um, but it's,
3: uh, but yeah, it's a shadow, it's for self, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it's gone, I'm afraid. But I suppose it's like the rest of the world. It moves on to new things, whether they're better or not. It's up to people to decide. But it was a very, very busy time there. Uh, Duty Free was going on at the same time as well, I think. Loads of stuff going on. Um, and John Thor did something, a comedy series there with his son, as I remember. I can't remember the title of it now.
2: That, that was Home to Roost, and uh, John Thor played the dad, and Rhys Dinsdale uh, played his son. Yes, he did.
3: And, of course, Les Dawson was around a lot of the time. And uh, we were all a bit scared of Les Dawson, because we thought we're, we're just a little soap, and he's up there, you know. So we didn't, we didn't talk to him. And I learnt later that he'd said, they're a snooty lot, that lot in Emmerdale. They never talk to me. And it was the other way around. We were a bit scared of him, you know. I'd love to have talked to him. You know, I always thought he was wonderful, Les Dawson. I did see him in pantomime in Manchester one time when he actually used the word shit on stage. It <laughs> brought the house down.
2: Yeah, Les Dawson was fantastic, and of course he was brilliant in that double act. Of course, he he did for many years uh, with Roy Barraclough for <laughs> Sissy and Adam, I and that was yeah, wonderful.
3: Yeah, absolutely.
2: And of course, you know, uh, at that time uh yorkshire tv had big names in regional television and of course that was richard whiteley in yorkshire you know it's obviously it's um he's been gone a while now but did you did you get to know him while you were there while you were at yorkshire tv yeah
3: reasonably well and i've still i've still uh keep in touch with Catherine Panovich. Because I knew her reasonably well, but I used to do a lot of radio work on radio and leads
2: so let's go back to the to the farming side of it um uh, They always say don't work with uh, animals and and children don't they um can you remember any uh any bizarre stories, accidents, things that happened while you were um working with the animals i mean uh, you know they they can be a bit precarious at times, can't they
3: oh no, my God. Um, I remember one time I was just about to put the uh, machine on the cow for milking and it, not deliberately obviously, but it swished its tail and banged me right round the face with a crappy towel. And I was not very pleased. But there was nothing you'd do. You just had to carry on otherwise you'd never get anything done. And sheep dipping and sheep shearing, God, I think I've still got a bad back from sheep shearing. They're very, very strong animals, and we had to hold you had to hold them up while you sheared them. And you couldn't do it. People used to think we cheated, but we didn't. We had to bloody well do it. And um, one day I picked up this sheep, and it really wriggled and struggled to get away, and it put my back out. And I was in an agony. I still had to carry on with the shearing. I couldn't say, "Oh, I can't carry." I can't. I've got to stop now. I just had to, you just, This was the whole thing about it. You just had to get on with it, whatever you were doing. Uh, if you didn't get on with it, they would be wasting camera time, etc., etc. Uh, and you didn't. You didn't have a lot of time, you know. You it wasn't like, say, a multi-million-dollar film where the leading star can say, "Well, I'm not doing that today," or whatever. You just. You just had to get on with the work. Oh no. Um. Oh dear, oh dear.
1: Oh. oh. No, this is rubbish, I'm sorry.
2: Um, un, unexplored brains? Oh,
5: okay. I know it's not the answer.
1: Oh, oh well, I never. I didn't know. Highbrow for
0: me. And it's back, the Distinct Nostalgia Mind of the Month Series 5, with the first specialist subject, the carry-on films. I can't wait. Oh, matron. Plus, we've a very special surprise involving a new role for a massive legend of soap. It's all to come this autumn and winter, only on Distinct Nostalgia. Oh, Thanks very much. Make sure you tell your friends about us and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.
4: New to distinct nostalgia. Dale, how the hell did I end up here? Based on a true story.
0: What choice do you have? Tell the world that Rock Hudson is gay? You're a
5: good-looking kid. I don't have anyone else on my books like you. How about I start to represent you?
4: A moving 40-minute drama based on the life and career of Rock Hudson.
5: Yes! Good boy. You just made the best decision of your life.
4: Written by Tim Fountain and starring Michael Xavier and Betty Bourne.
5: Rock! Rock? Strong. Masculine. Rock Fitzgerald? Not Fitzgerald. Sounds Irish. Nebraska, Washington, Hudson. Hudson. What about Rock Hudson? Get your coat on. I'm going to introduce Rock Hudson to Hollywood. Listen here on
4: the Distinct Nostalgia podcast... Or go to distinctnostalgia.com.
5: We gotta do something about your voice, kid. We're gonna snap your vocal cords. What? Ah! Uh, Louder. Ah! Uh, Louder! Uh, Rock,
4: <laughs> winner of the BBC's first ever online audio drama award. Look,
5: Dale, I'm dying of this godforsaken disease, and pretty soon thousands, maybe millions, will die the same way.
2: So Emmerdale started off with a small cast, but it, it, it wasn't long, was it, before the cast began to to expand?
3: Oh, I think it did, yes, because you couldn't, you couldn't run a series forever without about eight or ten characters. You had to have more people coming in to make it more interesting. And again, we were very lucky. I mean, I've heard stories about some shows where they say, oh, you can't sit there because so-and-so sits there. We never had any of that stuff people used to come in and feel made to feel at home straight away. There was never any, oh, I'm the star of this show or any of that, with, from any of the actors, you know. So that all made it very cosy and comfortable. And, and I think it makes for better work if you can all work together and not be up, you know, rowing with one another before you go on the set or anything. That doesn't help at all. It can't help. I wouldn't think anyway.
2: Basically. And of course, Annie you know, Sheila's character was the sort of the the linchpin of the show. The you know the matriarch, probably uh, both on and uh, and off as well in in, in a way. But um, she never really after there was never anybody else for her, was there? For a long time after 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 Jacob died,
3: she did marry somebody else. She married another character. I think I'd gone out of it by then. But um, and didn't she eventually even marry Amos because it was all very complicated after I left (laughs) because I know she married one person they went off to Spain together for a while and I think she retired to Spain in the end but she came back very occasionally when somebody had died and she'd come back to the funeral or whatever but um, I mean she was was amazing because you know she was Brian Rick's sister Yeah, and she'd worked at the Whitehall for a long time, doing Whitehall fasts, and she'd done a lot of theatre as well. So it was very odd about Annie, about Sheila, because she was a most extraordinary person, really. She could be very, very sharp with people, but people she knew she could be very loving with them. But she'd do lovely things like inviting us all to Sunday lunch, you know, she'd do the full... Roast and Yorkshire pudding and vegetables and very Yorkshire, of course, because they were from a York, she Was from a Yorkshire family originally. Sheila, she um, as I said, she she didn't suffer fools gladly, uh, but she was always very. good I mean, I'll give you one example of her quite eccentric behaviour. Her car broke down one day, and she called me up. She said, "Can you take me to work?" And I said, "Of course, I can." So we, I went and picked her up. They didn't live that far away. And we started off. She said, I don't go this way to work. I said, all right, Sheila, go whichever way you want. Tell me which way you want to go. So we went round the houses and went to work. And then I went to take her home. She said, I don't go this way home. <laughs> so we had to go a different way home from the way that we went there. It was very peculiar. But that was Sheila. You know, she was she was very... Loving and very lovely, but she was very forceful as well. Very forceful, you had to do what she wanted.
2: So, after all that time in Emmerdale and landing that role in 1972, uh, a big role uh, in a groundbreaking new series, you know, lunchtime uh, TV series which had never really been done before. Okay, there was a few that were uh being done at the time crown court and general hospital but you know this was a new era really and so you became a household name um did it did it change your life do you think
3: well yeah i mean i because because i lived in leeds of course very near the studios and one had to go out and shop and one thing another so it didn't change my life that much but you you were prepared all the time for people to ask for autographs and things like that and I always used to say you can be polite a million times and if you're rude to somebody once that's the story that will go around Leeds and I knew that it happened to some one or two people later on in the series and people they got a bad bad name for oh he you can't talk to him he thinks he's Big I am, that kind of thing. But that, I think that's a very foolish way to... I always, always answered every letter I got, personally. I never... Some people have secretaries and all that nonsense. I don't, didn't bother with that. But I always did it and I always thought, as I said earlier, you could be polite a million times walking up the head row, but if you were rude to somebody once, that would be the story that would go around Leith. Oh, he's big I am, big-headed or whatever, you know. I don't think that's I don't I don't think that's the way to behave anyway. So I, I just wouldn't. I've seen it in in the business not very often, but I've seen it a few times in the, with various people in the business who shall remain nameless. But um, I've always thought, no, you shouldn't do that. That's that's not very good at all. You know that? Do you know who I am? That kind of thing. I think that's terrible when people do that. I hate it. Why should anybody know who you are? Now, Emmerdale
2: is not what it started off as. Um, You know, the Emmerdale farm, the farm side of the title was dropped after a while. And uh, although there are elements of Emmerdale, you can still tell, you can still see the roots of Emmerdale. The show has changed over the years. Do you think that's inevitable that um, shows and soaps and drama serials uh, like Emmerdale, which has been going for nearly 50 years, uh, just inevitably, as I say, evolve?
3: Oh, I think I think they do, definitely. You can't, I mean, people say, oh, they wish it was still the farming family, but you can't do that forever. And things, the world changes, things change. we have going through the biggest change in history at the moment, or one of the biggest with the virus thing. But um, I think it has to change. Although uh, I was glad that I left when I did because I, I hated the idea of the plane crash. I really did hate it and I was glad I wasn't there. And they couldn't kill me off <laughs> with the plane crash because I'd already left. Apparently, the new producer had said, well, I'm going to have a plane crash and I'm going to kill him, him, her, her and him. They said, you can't do that. He said, well, all right, I'll have a plane crash and I'll just kill him, him and her kind of thing. You know, I didn't like that at all. It wasn't That wasn't the programme as it started out so to me. It was a gentle... I mean, I remember um, Robert Cardona, one of the producers, said... He would like to do an episode with no dialogue at all. It'd be wonderful to do a one episode and just have everybody working or doing whatever they're doing, blah, 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 and have no dialogue, no shouting at one another, no arguments. Because course, the trouble is with drama. You've got to have opposition and, and arguments anyway, otherwise there's no drama. But that was the other thing about Matt and Dolly. They were the the... the happily married couple on television at the time until naughty Dolly went off and had an affair with somebody and that was the end of it. <laughs> she went off with this uh, woodcutter or somebody, a forester, wasn't he? Yes. And uh, Matt found I had another crying scene to do then. How could you do this to me? Blah, blah, blah. I went off to Norfolk and I, I had my goodbye scene with Annie. I didn't have it with Dolly. It was funny enough... There is, I don't know if you know, there's a Facebook uh, group, Emmerdale Emmerdale 1972 Forever kind of thing, I think it's called. And um, people are always saying, why don't you come back? And I said, there's no chance of that. I read just recently, they had a picture of me and Sheila, uh, farewells before I went off to uh, Norfolk. People saying, oh, it's one of the loveliest scenes and all this kind of stuff. As, as I said, I got I got to love Selah very much indeed. She was a really, really good person. Excellent.
2: And, and it's interesting, isn't it? The soaps, you know, keep going. Um, there's, there is a bit of snobbishness about them sometimes, around them. Sometimes people sort of look down on them and say, oh, it's not real acting and it's not this, that and the other. Um,
3: but they, they're the great survivors, aren't they, really? Well, I used to think that when I was in it years ago... First of all, they they would do another series on uh, Yorkshire Television. I did a series about uh, Charles Dickens, for example, and some of the staff there, you say, oh, we're we're working on the Charles Dickens, we're not on Emmerdale. Kind of a bit snooty about Emmerdale. And then when the series came out, it wasn't very good. And I say, yeah, well, Emmerdale's still going on and you're not kind of thing, you know. Um, yeah, so I think that the term soap opera came from America because the the serials were always sponsored by Tide or one of those people and so they became known as soap operas. But, um, yeah, I mean, it's amazing how they carry on, really, and last and last and last, and it doesn't matter how many... I mean, I used to think that once Annie was out of it, it would die the death or once Angie was out of East End, as it might die the day, I worked with um, Anita Dobson in Pantomime, uh, because they were so strong in those days, but the programme becomes stronger than anybody in it. It really does, as long as you've got good writing and good directing. The programme is the programme, and it's not about the people in it, it's about how it's presented to the public. And I used to say, people used to ask me in the early days, why is it so popular? And I used to say, because in modern life, so many people live in flats. They don't have a natter over the garden wall anymore. And it's a way of kind of gossiping with other people without actually, you don't interact with them. But it's a kind of gossipy type of thing, isn't it? Uh, and, and people do talk about them the next day. I mean, I remember when I was accused of murder, there was a lorry went across London, which was a dirty, dirty... Laurie and somebody had uh, done a finger thing through the dirt saying matt is innocent <laughs> so and do you know do you i don't know if you ever watch uh, uh bottom or any of those uh rick Mail, he never stops going on about emmerdale we i've watched it occasionally now the repeats because it's very old but it still makes me laugh um, the other week he said, "Well, I could be sitting watching Emmerdale and Matt have his arm up a cow's ass."
2: Yeah, and uh, the the royal family, you know, with uh, Ricky thompson and Sue Johnson, they used to have scenes uh, where they all sat down watching the telly, and the Emmerdale theme tune would come on, and they'd hum it and sing it and all the rest of it. And as soon as it finished, they switched the program off. <laughs> I suppose one of the attractions of it, uh, as you say, is the fact that you know it's a community still, isn't it? It's. Uh, you know, people seeing, people interacting and, and that kind of thing, which probably people are quite envious of in a way today because uh, everyone's so, I and mean, even more so at the moment, everyone's so sort of, um, sort of isolated. We, you know, we, we don't have that, those communities that we used to have, do we?
3: Yeah, and they are, they are. I mean, so many families now are split up all over. I mean, I've got an eldest brother who's in his 90s. He lives in New Zealand. And I've got another brother who's married to a Spanish lady and he's mostly in Spain. They come over here occasionally. but So I don't see them very much. I've, never seen my, I've seen my brother in New Zealand once since he went out there because Emmerdale was broadcast in New Zealand. So you know, families are so much more split up nowadays than, than they ever were in the early days. And so after all
2: these years, Emmerdale still, I presume, has a big place in your heart. It was an important part of your life, wasn't it, for such a long time?
3: Well, it's, it must be very important in my subconscious because I dream about it a lot. I dream that I've gone back into it, which is totally stupid, of course, but I do. And I dream that I've gone back to the old Vic where I was four years in the 60s. So those two things are very deep in my subconscious somewhere. and uh, And I think I dream about those two because I enjoyed them both so much. Uh, They weren't horrible experiences, they were wonderful experiences. And the pension I saved up while I was in Emmerdale is still helping me to live, so that's quite nice. So I can't help thinking about it every time I get a payment from my pension scheme. Um, But I do think about it a lot, obviously, and I keep in touch with Fraser. Who else? And Jean, of course. Jean a lot, because I see her quite a
2: lot. Well, Freddie, it's been uh, lovely... Uh, to chat to you about uh, the early
3: days in Emmerdale. And
2: and to be honest, you've you've not changed a bit from the days of playing Matt, as
3: far as I'm concerned. Well, I'm very pleased about that, because one of my best friends once told me about... His mother used to watch Emmerdale, and he said, well, I know Freddie Pine. She said, which one is he? Matt. Oh, he puts years on me, she said. (laughs) And she, she was a right Yorkshire woman. Yeah, she said, oh, he puts years on me.
2: Matt did come over as pretty miserable at times quite he was quite dour wasn't he quite a dour character
3: yeah he was yeah there was there weren't many jokes or giggles with him but but that was their fault not mine
2: (laughs) well thanks freddie it's been lovely to talk to you and take a trip uh, down memory lane all the way back um, as long as I've been around, anyway, uh, to uh, 1972. As I say, I was born in November of 72, and Emmerdale uh, started in October 72. So, a uh, real great trip uh, down memory lane uh, for me and many, many other people, I, I, I'm sure. And of course, Emmerdale continues. You know, two years' time, it'll be 50
3: absolutely absolutely in three years time i'll be 87 (laughs) if i if i last that long and of course matt could return
2: couldn't he as you said earlier on you know he's still still alive in the storyline so uh you know you you could go back and have a you know a guest appearance oh i don't think
3: that will happen (laughs) now
2: well thank you freddie for for chatting to us all good wishes and uh you know, stay safe during, the, uh, during this current uh, crisis that we're going through.
3: OK, and to you. Bye-bye.
0: You're listening to Distinct Nostalgia, home to some incredible interviews with stars from all your favourite soaps. If you enjoyed today's episode, why not head over to distinctnostalgia.com for a treasure trove of programmes just like this. Lisa Williamson of Hollyoaks fame talks about life on the programme.
1: So we all got to know each other quite well. If you were chatting to some of the writers about something you've been getting up to, they would sort of write that in. So you started realising that some of your personality traits would come into the show. I got the script and I thought, what have I been up to? I got pregnant, I had the child adopted. It was, you know, you' you to think, wow, the writers have really gone to town for me today. You know, it's, it was great, fantastic.
0: Andrew Linford and Mark Homer reflect on sharing their first kiss on EastEnders in the 1990s.
4: When the the Blackpool episode came out, front page of the tabloids, it was like, get this scum off our TV and things like that. Just horrendous stuff. It, it was kind of the start of, of, of a big thing, really, and we're privileged to be involved in, in storylines like
0: that, I really am. And Nick Cochran discusses his life on the street as we continue our celebration of Corrie at 60. They were just brilliant with us, you know,
2: because we were a couple of little sh** who've fortunately found their way into the TV's biggest show without really knowing what they're doing. That's bottom line. That's where me and Simon were at that point. Myself and Simon are old school people. We were brought up properly, mate, and and so there was a lot of respect
0: then. More... Than there is now. These programs and many more are available at distinctnostalgia.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to be notified whenever a new episode becomes available. And if you like what we do, then please consider supporting us on Patreon. Every penny helps us to make even more amazing content just for you. Go to distinctnostalgia.com and click on the donate button. Thank you for listening, and bye for now.
1: Distinct Nostalgia is brought to you in partnership with Liferooms and Mersey Care NHS Foundation Trust. We've lots of activities for you to do at home at liferooms.org. Staying well, staying home.